The following is a sermon from the church at Cherrydale in Greenville, South Carolina. To learn more, visit us at tccherrydale.com. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll give our attention to the scriptures this morning. Uh, Father, we do give you great, great thanks that we have uh, Easter to look forward to, like that we... Uh, we, we're able to stand and, and celebrate in the hope of the resurrection, that the tomb is, is empty today, and uh, that, that you've placed kind of this fixed rhythm for us to, to turn our hearts to uh, the resurrection. We look forward to, uh, to Easter Sunday and the celebration of this uh, pivotal moment in our faith. Um, and and we, we do, as, we, as our minds drift there, we recognize just so many that are moving through life today uh, for whom that reality just has, has no effect. And, um, and, and our hearts break for those who are cut off from you. We, we ask that you would use your church as, as we scatter throughout the week to meaningfully engage with those who are far from you. And uh, to be proud of our church, to be the kind of people that, that want people to experience what's going on here. And so we pray that you would give us great intentionality and strategic insight into how we can invest in your mission as we uh, build to Easter this year. Pray that the preaching of your word this morning would have its due effect in mobilizing us for strategic mission and encouraging the hearts of the hearers today. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Genesis 18 uh, will serve as our text this morning. Genesis 18, faith and frailty. If you know uh, a little bit about our family, you know that uh, we enjoy doing some camping. Now, it's not the kind of camping that's going to make real campers proud, but it's the kind of camping that's not renting a hotel room, right? It's kind of like get under some trees. And it's the kind that you can go on the website and log in and kind of book your site, you know, which some of you are giving me a scowl right now because you're like, that's, if you can book your site, that's not legit camping. But that's kind of how we roll. We got the pop-up and we do. Now, if you go on a uh, website anymore to, to book a site, uh, the technology's really improved, you know. Used to be kind of find the uh, the, the address to the campground, you're like, all right, I mean, I, I, I think this looks good. We'll, we'll book the site. Well, well, now you can like click on the link and they have uh, street view kind of clicks and you can like scan the camera and see like the trees that I'm going to be underneath and where we're going to hang out and what this is actually going to, it's really, really cool for those who haven't been to a place to, to experience it as if you were actually there. If you've uh, bought a house recently or considered vacation, you know this to be true as well. You just get on the website and you click down to the street view and you kind of scan the scene as you interface it. It's cool for us to see how life is actually lived and experienced in a geography. Now, when we come to engaging with God's Word, specifically a, a, an Old Testament series like this with characters and stories and places that are a bit hard for us, it's, it's really difficult as hearers to get to the street view. Like, okay, I, I get the topography of the scene, I get the interaction of the characters, but like, what is this actually, what's the interface of this for me at like Tuesday at 10 o'clock? 
How, how, do I, how do I click down so that I get the way faith and frailty kind of intersects my life? And quite frankly, it's difficult as a preacher. It's much easier to kind of stay up in the clouds and give you the bird's eye view and not help us see, like, let's click down to the street view and see what does this text mean when it hits the road? Does the Bible have street cred? Uh, what I want to do for us this morning is hopefully demonstrate the street cred of Abraham's experience in Genesis 18. Specifically, these three vignettes of visitation. And demonstrate how God, in his grace, helps us bend frailty to faith. How does God's grace help us bend frailty to faith? in a consistent basis. That's why we've chosen this as the title of this series because it's all of our experience in Christ, a weird concoction of frailty and faith. So how does God's grace help us bend frailty to faith? We'll begin in Genesis 18, beginning in verse 1. Remember what's happened. If, if you've been with us in the weeks leading up, God has in a series uh, demonstrated his promises to Abram, then Abraham, that he would be a great nation, then specifically that he would have a, a child, and that this child through, through this great nation would be a blessing to subsequent nations. These are huge promises that in Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. We have in Genesis 18 another in a series of appearances. The Lord appeared to Abraham at the Oaks of Mom while he was sitting at the entrance of the tent during the heat of the day. And he looked up and he saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them. He bowed to the ground and he said, My Lord, if I found favor with you, please do not go on past your servant. Let a little water be brought. You may wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I will bring a bit of bread so that you may strengthen yourself. This is why you've passed your servant's way. Later you can continue. Yes, they reply. Do as you said. So Abraham hurried into the tent and said to Sarah, Quick, knead three measures of fine flour and make bread. Abraham ran to the herd and got a tender choice calf, and he gave it to the young man who hurried to prepare it. And Abraham took curds of milk as well as the calf that he had prepared, and he set them before the men, and they served them, he served them, as they ate under the tree. Now, this is a place where some level of cross-cultural travel or exposure really helps. If you've entered uh, less individualistic cultures, you're aware that this act of hospitality or care for visitors is quite normative around the world. It's unheard of in many cultures not to receive guests if they show up. In fact, uh, you stop everything that you're doing and attend to the needs of those that are sent with no sense of time, or so it seems. We don't live in this culture for the most part. Few of us, in fact, have people who just show up at our house. But what, what we have here is this sense of visitors sent by God and this reception from Abraham and Sarah. Now, there's no need to get lost in the exact identity of these visitors, much is written on, is this a 
pre-incarnate form of Jesus. What we have here is the revelation of God sent by these three men who are standing near the tent. God and his angels, God in the form of these three visitors coming to once again reiterate something about what God is going to do through Abraham and Sarah to the nations. And what we see in these verses is is Abraham and Sarah respond to God's visitation, what is going to come, this reiteration of the promises, by showing hospitality, by caring for them, by being attentive to their needs. This causes to mind the New Testament scene of Mary and Martha with Jesus in the home, one uh, being busy about the affairs and one simply ministering to, worshiping this Christ. Abram and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah respond. They do what needs to be done to show hospitality to these guests. Perhaps, at least from what's going to follow, we get this sense that they're expecting these visitors are going to tell them something else about what's to come. There's a sense of excitement in these words. But what I don't want you to miss in in all of this scene of preparation and hospitality is the great grace of God that's demonstrated through another appearance. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, here again in Genesis 18, Time and time again, God is confirming his promises to this couple using extraordinary means to point their attention to remind them of what is to come. And this is not uncommon for God throughout the scriptures. You remember the scene back in our uh, teaching series through the book of Judges? Judges chapter 5, Deborah and Barak, this leader that God is going to raise up to deliver the people once more. And we're given this scene, hey, you go and you fight on behalf of God's army. He's going to destroy the people. And we get this interaction with Deborah and Barak. They're like resistant to it. Is this actually going to happen? Is God going to come through? And Barak just so happens to kind of saunter down to the camp of the enemy. He gets down to the camp of the enemy and he starts eavesdropping on the tent where people are having conversation in the enemy camp. And one of the enemies testifies to another of the enemies about this dream where something just so happens to roll down the hill and destroy the enemy. And they begin to talk about the fact that they know God's people are up on the hill and that they can destroy them at any time they want to, and they're absolutely terrified. Barak hears these words from the enemy, quite comically, from the enemy, and and it encourages him. It emboldens his heart to say, hey, God's going to do what he said he's going to do. In fact, he's going before us to scare the enemy in these ways. This is the way God seems to work among a frail people. He confirms his grace, he confirms his promises as an act of grace time and again. And specifically here by appearing to leaders to reiterate these promises and plans. So click down to the street level with me for a moment. If God in his grace demonstrates himself, reveals his promises, then what's the street cred of that? 
Well, the street view, this is what God's people would affirm. God displays grace through reminders of his promises. Okay, this is the street view. This is the way you and I interface this. God demonstrates grace to me by consistently reminding me of his promises, which means my Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock interface with this text says, how is God being faithful to remind me of his promises through his people right now? That could be through Christian radio, could be through a sermon that you're listening to, could be through a conversation with your spouse, could be through a text stream with your small group members, but to look out for ways that God is reminding you of his promises, perhaps not supernaturally in this way with random visitors outside of your tent, that might be quite weird for most of you, but God is still a God who reiterates his promises to his people through reminders, which then forces us to say, am I actually around people who are reiterating God's promises to me consistently? Right? It's foolish for us to say, man, I get so lost in the craziness of life. God, why don't you ever like speak to me, encourage me, whatever, when we live radically individualistic, disconnected lives? It would be foolish for us to believe that's just going to drop out of the sky. Could God do it? Yes. What's the primary way God do, does it now? You're, you're looking at it. Right? It's, it's, it's us speaking, encouraging, ministering to one another. And friends, we need this. We need constant reminders of who God is and what he's doing in the world. Because we are constantly being trained in all sorts of other reminders. Some of you from different church backgrounds, the, the word liturgy may uh, denote certain things in your mind, certain forms of church that are going to have a bit more of a liturgical service. They're going to have some type of structure and pattern. Even if you came from a church that wouldn't have used the word liturgy, many of you who grew up in church, there was a certain rhythm to what you did. There's a certain pacing. You come and we sing a song about God's character and then somebody greets you in the name of the Lord. There's some type of call to worship and prayer. Then we sing songs of our confession of our sin and our need for Christ. The word is preached reminding us of God's promises. We sing some songs that testify to who Jesus is and what he did to forgive sins. And then we're commended to go out in mission and obedience. That's our liturgy here. That's what we're doing. And we believe that week in and week out, being trained in these rhythms helps to remind us of what life's all about and what's important. Now you think, oh, that's weird. Wait, here's what I would suggest to you. Everyone is being trained through their life in certain liturgies, certain patterns. You get done at work every day and you go plop down in front of the TV and turn on NMSNBC or Fox News or scroll your Twitter feed and your Facebook. Guess what? You're being discipled by those news broadcasts. You're being discipled by your Twitter feed. They all have answers to what the problem is in the world. Don't believe me? Cut on your local news. What are the solutions to fix those problems? How do we find hope in the world? And we would be foolish to think one hour in church on Sunday hearing about God and his promises, 50 hours a week scrolling secular news feeds with secular solutions to the world's problems, and I'm actually going to remember God and his promises and purposes in the world? No way. None of you are bright enough, myself included. 
So what we need are consistent liturgies through the people of God that remind us of the promises of God. Okay? Consistent reminders of God's promises by the people that we surround ourselves with. God displays grace by reminding us of his promises, and I would say through his people. Verse 9, the second stage of the visitation. Where's your wife Sarah, they asked him. There in the tent, he answered, and the Lord said, I'll certainly come back to you in about a year's time, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old, and they were getting on in years. What a great phrase, right? (laughs) Encourage one another with these words today. You're old. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing, so she laughed to herself. I am worn out, and my Lord is old. Will I have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you in about a year. She will have a son. Sarah denied it. I did not laugh, she said, because she was afraid. But he replied, no, you did laugh. You're going to have a kid, even in your old age. This, again, calls to mind these scenes. The Christmas story plays out in much the same fashion, right? You're going to have a child... Spirit's going to come on you. It's going to be remarkable. It's one of the reasons Luke reiterates this actual, this phrase here. There's nothing that's impossible with God in the, the birth there in Luke's gospel. There's patterns to God's promises here to Abraham and then later in the coming of Christ, who would be the means of fulfilling Abram's promise of the blessing to the nations, hence you and I. And then we have one of the funniest scenes in the book of Genesis, right? Discussing the laugh. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. I mean, they'll pluck it out of context and we'll envision an entirely fictitious scenario, right? Uh, let, Let me reiterate, this is an entirely fictitious scenario, but you can imagine there's a married couple and the wife has more words than the husband. Again, totally fictitious scenario. And at the end of the day, that wife really like enjoys talking about the day and processing with the day. And the husband in this fictitious scenario like really struggles to kind of engage in that for an extended period of time. And in this fictitious scenario, the husband likes watching college basketball and uh, has it on in the evenings fairly periodically. Again, fictitious scenario. And the wife is talking to the husband about her day and processing with this interaction. And there's a ball game on that the husband really would like to kind of keep up with and process with what is happening. While in this fictitious scenario, the wife is telling the husband about her day and asking meaningful questions, his eyes just happen to dart up to the TV periodically to check out the score. And it just so happens that for a little bit of an extended period of time, he's actually like staring at the TV and not staring at his wife. And then in this fictitious scenario, the conversation stops and she says something like, are you listening to me? And he says, yeah, babe, I was locked in. No, you weren't. You were watching basketball. You weren't listening to me. No, babe, I was, my eyes were there, but my mind was really 
on what you were saying, right? Now, none of you have been there. This is a totally fictitious scenario. But what I just described playing out is so indicative of a relationship, right? Like this banter back and forth only happens between people who are in relationship with one another. Now, yeah, and then there may be some tension, some awkwardness, like this back and forth. No, you didn't. Yeah, I did. No, you didn't. But you're not doing this with a stranger. If you do, it's going to get real awkward real quick. You're speaking into the life of someone that you know, people that you care about, those with whom you desire relationship and are working towards this heart connection. It's fascinating for me in both this scene and what's going to come at the end of this chapter, the personal nature of an altogether other God. Who in the world would expect a holy God to have this kind of conversation with someone? You laugh. No, you didn't. Yeah, I did. No, you didn't. Yeah, I did. Right? It's the, it's the banter of relationship. It's personal. It's indicative of a God who would say, they're going to be my people and I'm going to be their God. It's what God has promised to them last week. It's a personal relationship in which trust and knowledge between these two parties is at a high. And we see here the frailty of this couple laughing in the face of God's coming. I mean, there, there are two ways we can laugh. There's, there's the laugh, I, I can't believe that. This is awesome. It's the kind of laugh I gave when Sarah told me that we were pregnant with baby number five, right? Uh, in, again, in this fictitious world. Uh, it, it's like, I can't, this is great. I'm so amazed. Or there's the laughter that I think we see here. That's, that's an impossible. It's the laughter of frailty. It's, it, it's the laughter of a couple whose mind is blown by the, the promises of God. Street-level view of this scene, though in clearly important figure, redemptive history, God's work through this couple is unique. But I think what we see here is an indication of the way God displays grace by caring for us personally. God bends our frailty to faith by desiring a, a, a tenderness, a personal relationship with one who abides in Christ, where this type of conversation would even be possible. He wants to, to know, to, to see us, and he knows the motives, doubts, and complexity of the human experience. Let me ask you, is this the God that you interface with on Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock? The God that this level of intimacy would be true of your relationship? See, I would suggest that many of you grew up with backgrounds that at least trained your mind to think of God in really black and white terms. 
He does this, I do this, this thing happens. He does this, I don't do this, this is the result. Life's real black and white, everything's a 90 degree angle, it works, I'm moving these ways and this happens. And friends, that is not the experience of the life of frailty. It's a weird mix of laughter in the face of the promises of God. And it is a God who desires to know us in our complexity. To know us in the lazy boy with our cup of coffee when we say, at this point, I, I, I just don't believe God's promises in this area. Like, that level of intimacy and abiding with Christ, friends, is what God is, is, is after among his people. It's not this rigid 30,000-foot view of God that doesn't let him in on the ways that you laugh at the promises of God because we all do. So, so are you vulnerable with this God who desires intimacy with you in this way? He cares for you personally. He knows when you laugh. He knows your thoughts that this is impossible. So are you relating to him as that kind of personal God? Lastly, in verse 16, the men got up from there and they looked over Sodom. And Abram was walking with them to see them off. And the Lord said, should I hide what I'm about to do from Abram? Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I've chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he has promised to him. Then the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is immense. Their sin is extremely serious. I'll go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. The men turned from there and they went toward Sodom and while Abraham remained standing before the Lord, Abraham stepped forward and said, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of 50 righteous people who are in it? You could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city, Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abram answered, since I ventured to speak to my Lord, even though I'm dust and ashes, suppose that 50 righteous people lacks five. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? He replied, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And then he spoke to him again and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, I'll not do it again on account of 40. And he spoke to him again, Lord, don't be angry with me. I'll speak further. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I'll not do it if I find 30 there. And then he said, since I ventured to speak to my Lord, suppose 20 are found there. 
He replied, I'll, I'll not destroy it again on account of 20. Then he said, let my Lord not be angry. I'll speak to him one more time. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I'll not destroy it again on account of 10. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he departed, and Abraham returned to his place. Now we know by virtue of James' reading of the text how, how this scene's going to play out in Genesis 19. God's going to judge justly Sodom and Gomorrah. But it's interesting. I mean, we've got here 10 plus verses of this back and forth between God and Abraham. Why? God doesn't waste words. This isn't just like a throwaway chapter. I mean, he could have easily skipped from 50 down to 10, couldn't he? Could have just got one of these back and forth exchanges. Again, here is a vignette of intimacy. It demonstrates this back and forth negotiation with God. Who, who in their right mind gets to talk to God this way? Right? You mean you're going to do this? Abram knows the, the, the promise, the blessing to the nations. He knows that, that Lot has settled this land, this good land, Sodom and Gomorrah. He knows that his family's there, but like Babel before, this settling of the, of the land has resulted in all sorts of wickedness and heinous sin. And God is right in his judgment, as he's going to do in the following chapter. But here, God displays grace by inviting Abraham into his mission. He displays grace by inviting Abraham and all of those who are in his lineage into his mission. We see grace in the fact that he reveals to Abraham what he's going to do. I'm getting ready to judge. This is great, great. He didn't have to tell him. Could have just like the boys walked over there. Boom, it's over. Whole thing's wiped out. But he says, something's coming. Friends, he's done the very same with us, right? He said, judgment is coming. This is not lost on any of us. He doesn't have to declare what's going to play out. He doesn't have to tell us how we can be saved, but he does. So he demonstrates, and then he invites Abraham into this banter of prayer and interaction. God, spare, have mercy. You're just, right? Don't destroy the righteous with the wicked. Demonstrate your grace, perseverance, long-suffering in these people. He invites, I'm, I'm struck by this phrase, we see Abraham step forward. I think that's great language for us, for what it looks like to engage ourselves in God's mission. We, we, we know the judgment is coming. We know the end is near. But God, in his kindness and tenderness, as we've seen throughout this year, uses human frail instruments to step forward and involve themselves in what is happening in the broader world, particularly 
the spread of wickedness and the salvation of the righteous. A strategic means of bending your frailty to faith is strategic investment in God's mission in the world. We talk about around here a lot. If you are not meaningfully engaged in that mission through prayer, actively talking about the gospel, you will, given enough time, always cave in on yourself. Your frailty will crush you. So if we want to train our hearts in the liturgies of faith, the best means of doing that among God's people is to step forward, to intercede on behalf of others, to engage in conversation with God about the fate of the righteous and the wicked, to go to bat, as it were, God could save people however he likes, but he invites you and I to play a role in this intimate conversation we call prayer, where we train our hearts to trust his promises over our current experience. So click down to the street level for me. This, this then is your Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock, right? It should be. If it's not, and you find yourself like, Matt, Sunday after Sunday, I just come into this place, and I'm, man, I'm, I'm crushed under my own frailty. I feel guilt and shame, and I don't want to be here. I, I'm not responsive to God's word. I, I know what you're doing is right, but it just, it, it has no effect on my heart. Right? Then the, the means with which we, God, God's grace bends us out of that place is to lean into his promises. To lean into his promises through his people. It is to strategically and consistently invest in the work that he's doing and caring for us personally. And it's to place ourselves in his mission in strategic ways. These are the means of grace God gives us to live out our faith and bend frailty to faith from the life of Abraham in Genesis 18. Join me as we pray. Our Father, the, the street view for many of us uh, uh, seems to suggest way more frailty than faith. And, uh, and our interface with the world, uh, it's so difficult for us to, 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 to keep our eyes on your promises, to remember uh, the brevity of this life, the beauty of Jesus the future hope that awaits those who are in Christ. Um, we get, we get so, so disoriented. And we're working, we're, we're working upstream here. Like we, we've, our hearts have been trained 
uh, to embrace frailty, to find other answers for hope. And, and so, so we're asking something real significant when we say, would, would you use this, these short minutes that we've had together um, to, to help us see the life of faith that you've put before your people? Would, would, you, would you get our eyes off of the, the frailty and brokenness and get them up to your promises? Would you minister to us by your spirit through, through, through the word that's been preached, through the songs that we're going to sing now, and, and then just through the interaction of your people as we go? Like, would that, would that train our hearts toward faith. Thanks for being so kind to, to meet with us. And not like the, the broad us, like you're, but to those of us who know, like you're personally with us right now. And in that, your spirit is pressing truth into us in, in all sorts of unique ways. How, how amazing uh, to Think about a God who would so tenderly care for frail people. Would that produce really good things in our lives this week as we go? For Christ's sake.